The U.S. Border Patrol has exciting and rewarding career opportunities with the nation's largest law enforcement organization. Earn great pay with outstanding federal benefits and up to $20,000 in recruitment incentives. Learn more online at cbp.gov slash career slash USBP. This is the American Veteran Show. Proud to finally say these two words. Welcome home. Dedicated to those who have worn the uniform. Tremendous national asset. Dedicated to our active duty men and women. They came not as conquerors, but as liberators. Dedicated to presenting issues, topics, and interviews highlighting their commitment to our country. I want to thank the courageous men and women who've served their country in uniform. Less than 1% of the population of our country chooses to serve our country in the military. And the other 99% of us, we owe them. Online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephen Tubbs. Welcome to this week's edition of the American Veteran Show. So happy you're with us. This our 4th of July Independence Day weekend edition. It is a pleasure. We'll start off with something that is really big news here in the state of Colorado, especially for our friends in Pueblo, and you could say, indeed, the world community. We'll get into that in a moment. Then the rest of the program we celebrate with patriotic stuff. How's that? We could not do these programs without our presenting sponsor. Thank you, as always, to Attorney John Boson and his team at Boson Law. B-O-E-S-E-N, BosonLaw.com, fighting on behalf of veterans every single day. You can reach them online. You can reach them by telephone as well, 303-999-9999. Again, coming up, we will start the program with more on the closing, the shutdown, officially mission accomplished at the Pueblo Chemical Depot. We'll have that, and then the rest of the program dedicated to the greatest country on Earth, made possible only because of our United States military, those active duty And, of course, it's in our name, our veterans. First, let's get to Pueblo, Colorado. Total destruction of the United States chemical weapons stockpile is fast approaching. The two remaining sites, Colorado and Kentucky, are on track to complete agent destruction operations by September 30th, 2023. Honoring a commitment to the Chemical Weapons Convention and a commitment to community stakeholders to use alternative technologies. The Program Executive Office Assembled Chemical Weapons Alternatives, or PEO Aqua, is responsible for safely eliminating the remaining stockpile while protecting the workforce, public, and environment. We're destroying old, outdated, dangerous chemical weapons that makes this community safer to live in and raise a family in. In Colorado, the Pueblo Chemical Agent Destruction Pilot Plant, or PCAP, is destroying the stockpile at the U.S. Army Pueblo Chemical Depot. The original stockpile consisted of more than 2,600 tons of mustard agent in projectiles and mortar rounds. In the main plant, robotic equipment and skilled technicians are destroying the munitions using neutralization followed by biotreatment. In October 2022, Improved cavity access machines were installed to allow for efficient destruction of the last munition campaign, 4.2-inch mortar rounds. Meanwhile, three static detonation chamber units are destroying a portion of the mortar rounds, as well as the difficult-to-process projectiles. The Bechtel Pueblo team is operating PCAP and will close a facility. Since agent destruction operations began in 2015, the Pueblo team has completed two of three munition destruction campaigns. The mortar round campaign is more than halfway complete. By the spring of 2023, more than 95% of the total stockpile in Pueblo has been destroyed. 
seeing, you know, just how much we're contributing to actually making the world a safer place makes me pretty happy. If you couldn't tell that from a public service announcement slash corporate video. And the great news is, again, mission accomplished well ahead, months ahead of schedule. This also from a public service announcement. The Pueblo Chemical Agent Destruction Pilot Plant, or PCAP, is a state-of-the-art facility safely destroying more than 2,613 tons of chemical agent stored at the U.S. Army Pueblo Chemical Depot in Colorado. The Pueblo plant comprises several facilities and support structures on 85 acres of depot land. This includes the main plant and the static detonation chamber complex. The stockpile at the depot originally consisted of 155mm projectiles, 105mm projectiles, and 4.2-inch mortar rounds, all containing mustard agent. These chemical weapons are currently stored on pallets in earthen-covered bunkers known as igloos. Safe, secure storage and monitoring of the chemical weapons stockpile is the mission of the Pueblo Chemical Depot. I'm proud to be here and I'm proud to be part of this operation. I feel good that, uh, you know, the, that you're out here and that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing and that you're, you're getting rid of these munitions. It definitely makes me feel like we're uh, playing a huge role, a very important part to making sure that everything is a lot safer around here, not only for the community, but internationally as well. Remnants of chemical warfare. Uh, so mustard agent was first introduced in World War One. It was the first chemical weapons used in warfare, um, and it killed hundreds of thousands of soldiers. Decades later, Pueblo Chemical Depot is essential to fulfilling promises made at the Chemical Weapons Convention in the 1990s. The promise is to rid the world of chemical weapons. It's directly contributing to that vision and to the pursuit of a safer and more secure world. Yeah, world history is happening right now. One by one, crews at Pueblo Chemical Depot destroyed tens of thousands of chemical weapons. They're down to the final mortars filled with mustard agent. This is really about great, courageous men and women who are directly on the front lines dealing with chemical agents, explosives, high hazards. Each mortar is carefully sent through a system of highly trained workers working with specially developed automated systems. We'll reconfigure that munition. What you try to do is you, you, you reverse assemble it. First is diffusing the explosive. And from 2016 till now has been working to safely destroy that 780,000 chemical munitions. Next is removal of the mustard agent. The mortar is flushed with water at a force of 800 pounds per square inch. Any contact in the removal area requires workers wear completely sealed protective suits supported by outside ventilation. Their body's vital signs are remotely monitored as they work. Figure out how to thread a bolt um, onto a piece of machinery with four layers of gloves. I mean, it's just amazing what the workers have done uh, to keep the plant running very efficiently to support the mission. The agent is then diluted and neutralized through biotreatment. The end result is a salt-like substance. This is, this is how we serve our country, uh, by getting rid of these dangerous aging chemical weapons. And it's a, it's a lot of pride uh, for our workforce. Soon, a model like this will only be a reminder of a job well done. That also means the end of a job. At the end of the month, the last chemical weapons in Pueblo will be destroyed. Future the Pueblo Chemical Depot, of course, we told you last week about the mission of destroying hundreds of thousands of pounds of chemical weapons. That is nearing completion. So what's the future for the depot and its employees? 
The destruction of chemical weapons stored at Pueblo Chemical Depot is just days away from completion. We have been actively working to destroy 780,000 chemical weapons. Uh, we started in September of 2016, and we now have less than 4,000 rounds to destroy. It is first diffusing live explosives and then removing dangerous mustard agent. Roughly 1,500 employees do the work. It's bittersweet. Uh, we're doing something very important for our community uh, to rid Colorado of dangerous chemical weapons but we're also working ourselves out of a job. We've got a lot of work to do ahead of us. The dedication and skills of the depot employees is recognized. Plans are in action to help them transition to new jobs. There are companies from other cities and states recruiting. There's also efforts to find segues to nearby companies because many of the workers are from the Pueblo area and want to stay here. We're very focused on helping our workers find their next opportunity. 16,000 acres of the 23,000 acre Pueblo Chemical Depot has already been deemed surplus property. We're redeveloping that property presently. Uh, the next step is 7,000 acres that upon which the PCAP facility sits is our next redevelopment project. Russell DeSalvo heads Puebloplex. The group is working to find a future for the depot property. We're secure and the remoteness is actually an incentive for folks that wanting to do uh, research and development work. Laboratories, a biotreatment system and a self-contained electrical grid with a substation are among attractive assets for repurposing the facility. So think biofuels manufacturing uh, think battery manufacturing, think aerospace. The end of chemical weapons approaching fast. A future for employees and the facility in the works. Well, there is some pad time for the employee transitions to happen because they're going to be part of decommissioning that facility. Yeah, we're told that'll take place over the next couple of years. Those last two reports, courtesy of KOAA-TV in Colorado Springs. A salute and a heartfelt thanks to the men and women from the Pueblo Chemical Depot 780,000 weapons destroyed. When we come back, we dedicate the rest of the program to Independence Day here in the greatest country on earth. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. Now, back to the American Veteran Show. Here's Stephen Tubbs. Happy Independence Day weekend. Welcome back to the American Veterans Show, our annual Independence Day, 4th of July, Freedom Weekend program. Stephen Tubbs, our producer, Michael Arpaio, one of my favorite historians of all time. He has been gone now for almost a year. Last August, the incredible author and speaker and voice actor David McCullough passed. But here's a great look back at how he told an audience at the National Archives. He was getting an award there. He spoke at the National Archives and he talked about the amazing individuals that would create this country. Jefferson, Adams, Washington. They didn't walk around saying, isn't this fascinating living in the past? Aren't we picturesque in our funny clothes? They lived in the present, it, but it was their present, not ours. And they don't know how it's going to come out any more than we do. They don't know what's over the horizon. There's much that they don't know, much that they don't know because they lived in the 18th century, just as there's much that they did know that we don't know because they lived in the 18th century. So when we try to enter into their world, into their time, into their culture, we must remember that their present was different from ours. And as a consequence, they were different from what we are. 
in many ways more different than we realize. Yes, of course, they were fellow human beings. Yes, of course, they had many of the same emotions and fears and ambitions and the like. But because they lived in another culture, they, of course, were different. And again, more different than we often understand. Now, George Washington has long been long perceived as the marble man, virtually a demigod, uh, an emblem, a unifying symbol, an icon, and the rest. And he's very knowable. He's very approachable, to use a word in fashion. And this we can find in what he wrote. There are no photographs of Washington, as there are no photographs of any of the people of the 18th century, except some very, very long-lived soldiers who, whose lives extended beyond, way beyond the Revolution, so that they were photographed as in their late 90s or more than 100 years old in ancient, wonderful daguerreotypes. There are only about seven of them. There are no recorded voices. We don't know exactly what George Washington's voice was like, or... Jefferson or Adams or any of them. We don't know exactly what a New England accent was like or a Virginia accent was like. And there are no film clips, and there was no reporting done of the war. No war correspondence covered the Revolutionary War. They didn't do that in newspapers in those days. So we don't have British correspondents coming over to cover their side of the war, or German correspondents to cover the Hessians and how they were faring, or American correspondents, either loyalist or patriot, recording what was happening from their point of view. And there are no artist correspondents, no uh, Winslow Homer covering, uh, covering the Civil War. There are no on-the-spot sketches or paintings of any of these people during the war. They were all painted after the fact, and very often by people like John Trumbull, and, um, and Charles Wilson Peale in a very sort of formal and almost European manner. What do we have? We have the letters. We have the diaries. We have the account books, the records of the different commands, the orderly books, memoirs. And these, in their way, are so eloquent, so full of the emotion and the lives and the point of view of those who wrote them, that it, it, in, its, in their way, they compensate for all that we don't have. I found particularly valuable the uh, letters of a man named Jabez Fitch, who no matter what was happening to him in this 18 months of the book that I wrote, from 17, summer of 75 through to the end of 76, no matter what was happening, he was, he was writing it all down in a diary. Joseph Hodgkins, letters to home to his wife, Sarah, and her letters to him. A little boy named John Greenwood. If you're writing a novel, you wouldn't dare risk so obvious a symbol uh, for a name as John Greenwood. He was about as Greenwood as any uh, soldier in the war. A little boy who had um, found a fife, a broken fife from a British soldier in Boston, mended it and learned to play it. And when his family sent him up to Portland, Maine to get him away from the, the uh, occupation of, the, of Boston by the British, and he heard that the war had broken out, he put that little fife in his shirt pocket, and with nothing more than the clothes on his back, set off to join the army, walking 150 miles by himself all the way to Boston. He was 16 years old, uh, but he, uh, he looked about 
14 or less, and he was quite small for his age. And his memoir of the war is one of the most telling and descriptive and, and moving accounts of all, which includes uh, his first encounter with a wounded soldier uh, after the Battle of Bunker Hill, right on through to a brilliant, wonderful description of the crossing of the Delaware and the attack on Trenton at Christmas night in the end of the year 1776. So these have been the voices that I have been listening to for the last uh, three years and more. And those of George Washington and Nathaniel Green and Henry Knox and John Glover, British officers, Hessian officers and men in the ranks, loyalists, innocent bystanders. Washington's own total count of letters just written in this 18-month period totals nearly a thousand. We don't think of Washington as a great writer of letters. Now, many of them were dictated. Nonetheless, they're his letters, and they're very revealing, especially those that he wrote in private. For while this very self-controlled, very, um, the very model of a leader acting as a leader in his presence before the troops always, never revealing doubt, uncertainty, or what was going on in the inner side of him, in his privacy, in his privacy, and particularly late at night when he was sleepless, he would pour out his innermost feelings in a way that is immensely human and very revealing. He was often full of despair, often full of doubt, very often full of self-pity. And who was to blame him? The historian David McCullough at the National Archives. About 15 years ago, he passed just last August. 60 Minutes had a chance to visit with David McCullough. This from the late Morley Safer with the late David McCullough. The old Pennsylvania Colonial State House, Independence Hall, where in July 1776, the colonies, already at war with Britain, voted on making the final break. Can you give me a sense of, of the atmosphere in this room on that day in 1776? The atmosphere is, t- is tense, and it's, it's um, exciting. It was very, very hot. It was summertime in Philadelphia with flies biting through their silk stockings. This is on July 2nd, not on July 4th. Nothing really happened on July 4th. That was the date that was on the document when it was printed. The document, of course, was the Declaration of Independence from Britain. The writing of it was largely Jefferson's work. This is an early draft in his handwriting. In this room, Thomas Jefferson never never stood up to say much of anything, ever. He left that to others to do. Not a speaker. Not a speaker. And when he spoke, his voice was weak. He would be terrible on television today. Franklin often looked as though he were asleep. And his admirers and friends said he thought, if I, if I look like I'm asleep, people might say things they wouldn't say in front of me if I were awake. Adams was short and stout and cranky and abrasive, but honest and courageous. And he had great humor. To those still wavering, John Adams' speech turned the tide. It was delivered during a thunderstorm, an hour long, but carrying a short message. Adams insisted now was the time. Now was the time. Whether you celebrate it on the 2nd or the 4th of July, John Adams also spelled out how it should be observed. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade. 
with guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other from this time forward forevermore, which is remarkable when you consider that these colonies were just on this side of the Allegheny Mountains and the idea that he's seeing it all the way to the Pacific Ocean. So they, they dreamed big, and we ought to remember that in this little room. That from 60 Minutes, again, the great historian David McCullough. We'll continue our Independence Day, Freedom Weekend, 4th of July annual program coming up next. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. Welcome back to the American Veteran Show. We continue now with Stephen Tubbs. We continue this Independence Day weekend here on the program. Hope you have enjoyed the program so far. As always, be sure to visit AmericanVeteranShow.com, AmericanVeteranShow.com. So what about that piece of paper crafted, well, passed, obviously, July 2nd, 1776. We officially commemorate when it was signed, and that would be July 4th, 1776. This from the History Channel. Declaration of Independence, for me, is one of the best pieces of writing I've ever seen. It's a revolutionary document for a revolutionary statement. You cannot help but be stirred when you read those words. Thomas Jefferson's writing uh, is absolutely magnificent. And when he wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. That was the first time anybody had bothered to write that down. And then you turn the clock back and think of when he was writing, how young he was, what a statement it was, given the history of the world at that point. And you feel the excitement of being on the cusp of something so profound that it's hard to put it into words. If you review our Declaration of Independence, it has those beautiful words about all men are created equal and governments are formed among men to represent the people. It's a good statement of what we're all about. And that's the only thing people remember about the Declaration of Independence, that it was about all men are created equal. But it's really a roughly a 28-count indictment against King George. And therefore, because of the way in which the British Crown treated us, we now declare that we are a free country, and we want to let you know why. Now, we're going to have a war. We're going to have a war. In 1776, you have the Continental Congress meeting in, uh, in Philadelphia, debating uh, a unified position for the colonies with respect to the hostilities that have already broken out. And the fundamental issue uh, between them is, are they fighting for their rights as Englishmen within the British Empire, uh, or are they going to fight uh, for independence? And they're seriously divided. People who are perfectly willing to re uh, resist the tyranny of the British government are not necessarily willing to strike for independence. But there's a groundswell in favor of it, I think in large measure, because they recognize that having provoked the lion this far, uh, there's no going back. All of a sudden you have this group of people who are going, no, we're, we're not part of some great chain of being with the king at the top of it. We are free people. We, we can vote for who we want to have in charge. And we're not going to tolerate you telling us that we have some class status we have to be trapped in. It says, you know, we are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, meaning that Parliament in London, the king himself, uh, the courts 
cannot interfere and take away your rights because the state can't take power from us. So even to this day, it's probably the most central difference between America and every other country in the world. It goes well beyond what was needed in order to declare independence. It, it establishes a philosophical basis for a civil democracy in which all persons are guaranteed rights by virtue of their personhood. This political genius, not just in Jefferson, but in Adams and all the other people who collected here, they saw a new time for humankind, which is that we can be free and that we can make decisions for ourselves. That from the History Channel, this as well as we continue our Independence Day weekend program right here on the American Veterans Show. The Declaration of Independence is, without doubt, the most important uh, document in in the Revolution and perhaps uh, in American history because it sets forth the ideals uh, under which the the United States lives. It's the one thing that holds us together, the the belief that all men are created equal. Now, of course, all persons are created equal and that all of us have certain inalienable rights. Those ideals, those aspirations are the adhesive that hold us as a diverse people. Many of the rebel leaders were reluctant to declare independence. In July of 1775, the American Congress even sent a conciliatory proposal directly to George III. John Adams dubbed it the Olive Branch Petition. But the English king refused to receive it and instead sent to America a belligerent proclamation. Whereas many of our subjects in diverse parts of our colonies and plantations in North America, misled by dangerous and ill-designing men, and forgetting the allegiance which they owe to the power that has protected and supported them, have at length proceeded to open and avow rebellion. We do accordingly strictly charge and command our officers, and all others our obedient and loyal subjects, to use their utmost endeavors to withstand and suppress such rebellion. George III, August 23rd, 1775. The king was convinced, as most of his subjects were, that it was essential to retain control of the American colonies. And he proceeded to the bitter end to believe that and bitterly opposed even the making of peace at the end. Indeed, there's a domino theory. If you let America go, everything else will fall. Canada will fall, the West Indian colonies will fall, and so on. Thomas Paine was an Englishman who had come to America through the sponsorship of Benjamin Franklin. Early in 1776, he wrote an enormously successful piece of propaganda called Common Sense, the first major public call for independence. In months, the 47-page pamphlet had sold 100,000 copies. O ye that love mankind, ye that oppose not only the tyranny, but the tyrant, Stand forth. Every spot on the world is overrun with oppression. Freedom has been hunted round the globe. Oh, receive the fugitive and prepare in time an asylum for mankind. Thomas Paine, 1776. 
Forward-thinking Abigail Adams saw in the climate of change a rare opportunity for her own sex. I long to hear that you have declared an independency. And by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose it'll be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could be. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice. Abigail Adams, letter to John Adams, March 31st, 1776. Finally, the Congress created a committee to put America's demands for independence into writing. A 33-year-old Virginian, Thomas Jefferson, accepted the task of authorship. In Williamsburg, weeks before his new assignment, Jefferson had written the preamble to Virginia's Constitution. He would use it to guide him in his current task. He rented the upstairs flat of this house in Philadelphia to do his work. And in the parlor, at a small desk, he wrote the Declaration of Independence. It was intended to be an expression of the American mind and to give to that expression the proper tone and spirit called for by the occasion. Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson believed Franklin should have written the Declaration, but the world-wise old diplomat shied away from such things. I have made it a rule whenever in my power to avoid becoming the draftsman of papers to be reviewed by a public body. Benjamin Franklin. Instead, Franklin tinkered with Jefferson's text. We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable became we hold these truths to be self-evident. The greatest tinkering, though, came from the Congress itself, in session at the Philadelphia State House. Jefferson's original draft contained a passionate condemnation of the slave trade. Jefferson was a slaveholder who hated slavery. He wanted to abolish it. He moved at various times in the state legislature of Virginia, in the Continental Congress, to uh, try to make inroads against this institution. But of course, he himself was always a slaveholder and was never able to free more than a half dozen or so of his own slaves, which numbered at one point around 200. So that inconsistency uh, nodded him throughout his whole life. Jefferson's declaration was approved on July 4th, 1776, only after the condemnation of the slave trade was deleted. Audio courtesy of the History Channel. We'll wrap up this special Independence Day weekend edition. Coming up next, don't go anywhere. It's less than 10 minutes, but the reading of the Declaration of Independence. Stay tuned for that. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. This is the American Veteran Show, online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephen Tubbs. We wrap up this 4th of July Freedom Weekend Independence Day weekend program here on the American Veteran Show with a reading of the Declaration of Independence. In Congress, July 4th, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. 
when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such forms as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained. And when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people, unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states, for that purpose obstructing the laws of naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. 
He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislators. He has effected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, for protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government, and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies, for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments, for suspending our own legislators and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages, and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections among us, and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince, whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant, is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in attention to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They too have been deaf to the voice of justice and of consanguinity. We must, therefore, acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general congress, assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, 
do, in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all of the acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. The Declaration of Independence. Truly a remarkable document. We hope you enjoy the rest of your 4th of July Freedom Weekend, Independence Day Weekend. For producer Michael Arpaio, I'm Stephen Tubbs. Have a terrific week and remember our troops. Looking for a fun way to win up to 25 times your money this basketball season? Test your skills on prize picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com slash get100 and use code get100. That's code get100 at prizepicks.com slash get100 for a first deposit matchup to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy.